Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 27th, 2022, the Briar Watch Hath Ended edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from somewhere else. Dallas. Uh, she's Dallas. Traveling. I don't know why. In Dallas. Dallas traveling. And by, of course, John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning from New York. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. Hello. Before... We get to, uh, we're going to get to Briar, obviously, but I want to, I just, I had an amazing weekend experience, which is that I went to the very tip top of Minnesota with my college roommates and I snowshoed and snowmobiled and I went dog sledding, which is the most amazing experience I've had in years. Have you guys dog sledded? No. No. It is amazing. It's amazing. I cannot recommend this enough. This is my, this is like, I'm putting my cocktail chatter at the top of the show. It is incredible. It was like a million below zero, seven below zero out in the woods south of Ely, Minnesota. And there are these hundred Alaskan Huskies out there. Each one has their own, their own little kennel. They're happy as clams, even though it's so cold. They're so happy to be out there. They're so happy to run. And there's this bunch of like lean hippies, 25-year-old apple-cheeked hippies who are taking you out on these sled rides. It's amazing. It is just amazing. There was also, there was this one incredibly old guy there who was like, he was in charge of feeding all the dogs. And I was like, why is there this really old guy? And they, and they said it was a new intern. It was this new intern, Steve. <laughs> and he was, and it was Stephen Breyer. He had started an internship at this dog sledding place. He is desperate to compete in the Iditarod now that he's off the court. And he's retired. He's training. He's like learned to harness the dogs, how to drive dogs. He bought his own sled, which is named Equal Justice. They showed it to me in a little barn all the way up to Minnesota, but mostly he just slings dog food to these dogs. But it was, it was great to see him. Oh, that was excellent. That was perfect. I think, I think we should all just sit savor. and enjoy the silence and savor that just the whole kind of circular, something is completed and, and come into one in the universe for David. This week on the Gap Fest, Justice Stephen Breyer finally resigns from the Supreme Court. Will President Biden be able to replace him and with whom? Then we'll talk to Anne Applebaum about the ever more alarming showdown between Russia and Ukraine. And then we'll be joined by Mike Pesca, whose podcast, The Gist, has just relaunched for a grab bag round of topics. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. Emily, Stephen Breyer is retiring, finally, from the Supreme Court he has served on for exactly one year too long. President Biden has vowed to replace him with the first black woman Supreme Court justice. Uh, there are two, maybe three, but the two candidates I've heard most talked about is California State Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger and Federal Appeals Court Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Uh, so do you have any sense, Emily, of why Breyer, who's 83, finally decided to call it quits? He'd been getting stick to do it for since the day Biden was elected, essentially. Right. So... I think the most important thing about Justice Breyer is that he cares about the consequences and the impact of Supreme Court decisions. People often call him a pragmatist. He wrote a whole book about why judges should take into account the the results of their decisions, the effect that they're going to have in the world. He did it while also paying attention to the text of statutes and the Constitution. But this idea that judges should care about real-world impact and evidence went really deep with him. I just want to take a minute to like to show how that was true in some important decisions he wrote. So there's a 2016 abortion case in which uh, the court was looking at a bunch of restrictions in Texas that were 
effectively going to cause most of the states and the clinics to close. And there's nothing fancy about Breyer's majority opinion. He just goes through the evidence and shows why, in fact, these clinics would close and why the state's case that they were doing something protective of women, which was really important to the argument, was just incredibly weak and thin and why, in fact, women's health depends on having access to abortion. And you can also see this in this decision he wrote about the death penalty, a dissent in which he questioned the constitutionality of the death penalty. And it was a change in position for him. This is in 2015. In this case, Glossop versus Gross. And he wrote, in 1976, the court thought that the constitutional infirmities in the death penalty could be healed. Almost 40 years of studies, surveys, and experience strongly indicate, however, that this effort has failed. So that reliance on the evidence with which Breyer then goes through in great and to me persuasive detail, that is very typical of the strengths of Justice Breyer. And I think what we are seeing in this prelude to his retirement was actually also something that was about impact. It was tactical. So Breyer wrote a book last year that was all about the rule of law. It was making the case that judges aren't politicians. I know, I'm sure he believes that. He was also making a case to his conservative colleagues, I think, about the reputation of the court and the way in which they should not let it be politicized. And so I think he stayed until now because he thought there was juice in that argument. And what I heard when I was listening to the um, to his remarks, his questions, I suppose, in the oral argument in the Mississippi abortion case a couple months ago was a sense of incredible frustration and despair that, in fact, the court was not paying attention to the rules that he cared about, about respect for precedent, about moving incrementally, about the ways in which he thought the court could spare itself from this big break with the past that would be very political. And I think he withheld his retirement until now because he thought that he could have a helpful impact. And he's also a political animal in his own way in the end. He's a former staffer for Ted Kennedy. And he knows, he said, you know, Justice Scalia talked about how you don't want to be replaced by someone who's going to undo everything you just did for lo these many decades. And this timing is actually pretty good politically for President Biden. He has a bunch of time to get someone in place before the midterm elections. And I think in the end, it's all about impact on the court, even though I found watching this whole run with this book and all the things Breyer was saying frustrating to listen to because it seemed out of step with the actual court. I think his audience was his conservative colleagues. Also, isn't it the last moment he could do it, essentially? I mean, he'll be there till June, but I mean, given one thing and another, if he waits too much longer, it risks actually replacing him with somebody who might be able to keep his legacy intact. Yes, it's the last season he can do it. But I think like a lot of people expected him to wait until the summer. That's been the traditional time at which justices retire. And I think by actually by his lights, in a sense, he did it a little early. I know it doesn't feel that way to David Plotz, but. I, I, I think that's absurd. Like they, they have a 50 seat position in the Senate. They know that if they lose the majority, that, that the Republicans could do anything. The Republicans could definitely block another Supreme Court appointment if they lost it. And the chances of one of these 50 people who is in their majority defecting to another party, uh, dying, having a stroke is incredibly high. And I, and I think it's, it is very generous to Breyer, very generous to say, oh, he's done it early. Also, well, the, shouldn't we clarify that he, he's not, I mean, he's going to serve out the rest of this term. He just gets the, the process started. They can, in fact, nominate and confirm somebody to replace him while he's still on the bench. So it's, in other words, he's not making a decision to book today. He's going to be there all the way through June. And he could have made that decision Jan 1 or even last year. Yes, that's, well, I don't know about last year. That would have been weird. But yeah, that's all true. And it's important because they've heard a lot of cases. And so if he was going to pull out, then he'd be, his vote would be missing from those cases. I guess, I mean, David, what you said is true. And if you're thinking about like, you know, an older senator dying, then obviously the sooner the better. But the dynamic you're talking about with 50 senators has been in place since Biden's election, right? Since 2020. So it's not like there's a huge difference between then and now in that particular regard. Well, they're all a year older, and they are all yeah. actuarially, actually, there's a significant difference for, for Pat Leahy or whoever 
I mean, I don't even know if Pat Leahy still. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. I think Breyer, if you look at the last term, there were some decisions like in the Obamacare case where there was kind of near unanimity or like sort of papering over a lot of differences. And I bet you that when we see the justices' papers years from now, it will be clear that Breyer played an important role and that he thought he was playing an important role in trying to marshal the court toward, you know, larger majorities when he could. And that would be the justification he would probably give for the timing. I wonder if the question of the the partisanship of the court is any longer in the court's hands. I mean, they can do things at the margin, but in reflecting on this and going back and looking at, and I also think Mitch McConnell is quite unpopular in the Republican Party and in his state, and it's nuts. <laughs> because when you think of the things that Mitch McConnell has done for the Trump movement and the conservative movement and the extent to which they overlap in some places, he <laughs> kept Merrick Garland from getting a hearing in the Senate, which basically helped Donald Trump get elected. That's basically yeah. the consensus opinion. Then he yeah. played Calvin Ball with the rules saying, first, we can't let Garland get a hearing in the Senate because the people have to speak and we're so close to an election, we have to hear from the people. So we can't have a, a hearing for Garland. Then when Amy Coney Barrett comes up and the election's very close, just around the corner, he says, no, no, the people have spoken. We don't need to wait for the people to speak. We need to, we need to nominate her now. That Calvin Ball, totally changing the rule, not only made the uh, nomination and confirmation of a Supreme Court justice defined by the, the strongest power play of a partisan. It's not just regular partisanship. It's power politics partisanship that, that is responsible for people who are sitting on the court. They're locked in. They are the most elegant use of power in sublimating the opposition that we've seen in the modern era. And the court cannot do that. Yeah. John... Is there any way that Mitch McConnell, in the position he is in now, Republicans in the minority in the Senate, can block a Biden appointment? Is it likely to be a cakewalk? They can. Well, not a cakewalk, only because you don't know what Manchin and Cinema are going to do. And and this does raise some questions I don't have the answer to. But but roughing up Manchin and Cinema, which you'll note, by the way, we didn't talk about this, but when Biden had his press conference for two hours. Go back and look how delicately he handled Mansion and Cinema. He didn't mention them by name. He didn't call them out or do anything like that. It was always striking to me, you know, you got to be careful with them because not only do they hold his legislation in their hands, but they also will play a role here. Their past behavior suggests that they would be on the team of the president's nominee, um, but they're still up in the air. And then you've got the question of, are there some Republicans to possibly get? So it looks, you know, it looks like there's a pathway, certainly more than a pathway for lots of other things. There's only a 50-vote threshold that's required uh, for Supreme Court justice, thanks to Mitch McConnell, and who would say thanks to Harry Reid and on and on. But I think that it's, you know, it looks like this is possible to, uh, to keep the court from losing one of its liberal members by replacing it with another one. Emily, what do you make of the the names you've heard so far of of uh, Jackson and Kruger and and uh, a couple of others who are Childs child in South Carolina. Yeah. I don't know any of these people personally. One thing that I find exciting about Katanji Brown Jackson is that she was a federal public defender. There's nobody on the court from a defense lawyer background. I also like that Leandra Kruger is from a state court. There's also no one from a state court on the Supreme Court. I know that's not like the most whoa yeah since That's Sandra crazy. Day O'Connor I think or maybe David Souter was on the yeah I think he was on the New Hampshire Supreme Court before he was a federal appeals court judge you know that's not like um some hugely wildly diverted background from everybody else but it's something I'll take it and as far as I know they both seem like super intelligent, eminently qualified judges, like very much in the mold of the kind of, you know, intellectual prowess that we expect for the Supreme Court. Michelle Childs may be absolutely just as good. I just know less about her. And she's like young, which maybe is an attribute if you think you should just put someone on the court who will be there forever and ever. But I sort of imagine she might be more like a reserve pick for a future seat. I mean, we're going to find out a lot more about these judges um, in the weeks to come, especially whoever gets chosen. I think it's a really smart idea that Senator Durbin and Senator Schumer are talking about moving quickly in the kind of um, Justice Barrett speed, like five or six weeks. 
I think that's better for the country. The Democrats need a win. Um, the confirmation processes have become so grueling and in many ways like unpleasant as the court has become politicized that minimizing the time frame I think is a good idea. And I also think to make the obvious point, the Democrats need this to go smoothly. They need someone who does not turn out to have some like secret flaw. So we'll, we'll see what happens next. At the risk of, of inviting misinterpretation, I wonder how smoothly they need it to go. Because one of the things that has, we've talked about this a million times before, but conservatives care more about the court in terms of voting behavior than than liberals have. It's been an energizing part of getting uh, conservatives to turn out. And presumably a big fight would do that for Democrats. Conservatives are perfectly energized they're going to be super energized going into 2022. The, the Democrats have an issue on their side with energy. And that to the extent that there is a public moment surrounding this nomination, it allows Democrats, leaders in the party, the president, to make the case for whatever that is that they believe in. So a moment of controversy, and it doesn't necessarily have to come from a weakness of the nominee, it can come for some, from some other reason, provides an opportunity to kind of at least not reset, but but engage in politics in a way that helps a party that's having uh, real issues right now. Hmm. Well, you need the perfect uh, moment of controversy that doesn't dissuade Manchin or cinema from right. voting for this person. I also think Collins and Murkowski are going to be in play, especially if they're already 50 clear votes and they're not the tiebreakers. Stephen Breyer is a smart guy, and he's by no means the longest serving member of this court i think right? right he's not yeah so but it is just i think i'm going to say something we all can agree on emily even you <laughs> and i can agree on it's absurd that anyone should serve in any job that long especially a job that is supposed to reflect the breadth of america and to be somehow you somehow have to like have a connection to the pulse of the country it is ridiculous it's obscene that the court is packed with these lifers that Clarence Thomas is going to end up spending, you know, two thirds of his life effectively on this court nominated, you know, as relatively young people and then cloistering themselves for two generations. It's just wrong. Oh, I totally agree with that. I mean, absolutely. I'm in favor of 18 year term limits. And, you know, there's another way to think about this last lap of Justice Breyer's with his book, which is that he thought he was serving the public interest and having a positive impact by defending the court's integrity, but that actually, if the court really is so politicized and riven and lurching dramatically to the right, it's not a good idea to pretend otherwise. And that actually his audience of his conservative colleagues, he didn't get very much for it. I think that's going to be the lesson of this term. And, you know, he's give, he's contributed to this misimpression of, of the court's great unpolitical reputation. Now, I don't think the American public is buying it. I mean, the court's approval rating has dropped more dramatically in the last year and a half than, you know, since Gallup started rating it. So he didn't necessarily put one over on people. But it is going to be interesting to see how that effort looks when we have a little more historical distance from it. And it's not just the partisanship, it's the anti-majoritarian aspect of judicial nominations. Five of the six sitting Republican justices have been appointed by Republican presidents who initially lost the popular vote. Uh, all three of Trump's nominees were confirmed by senators who represented la- less than half of the American public. If you split the Senate in half and apportion population to each senator by half of the states that they represent, there's only been a period since 1980 where the Republicans, for a two-year period, represented the majority of the country. And they are the ones who are the main, you know, legislative players in the judicial nominating process. So there's that, there are those tides that are that are changing too, in addition to the just kind of hyper-partisanship we see in our day-to-day life. Right. And as a very evidence-oriented uh, person, Justice Breyer did seem to be ignoring a lot of that evidence in his, uh, you know, drumbeat of defense for the court. So let's leave. Uh, I understand that Jocelyn has has uh, created a little audio montage of some of our discussions of, of Justice Breyer. Who will Joe Biden nominate to succeed Stephen Breyer, who has not yet resigned? Plus, we will not look back on the distinguished legal career of Justice Stephen Breyer on the occasion of his resignation because he mysteriously has not yet stepped down. Plus, the Supreme Court does not split four to four on a critical case as the Senate 
delays confirmation of the nominee to succeed Justice Breyer because Justice Breyer mysteriously <laughs> has not yet stepped down. Plus, we will not talk about former Justice Stephen Breyer's dramatic speech denouncing the partisanship of conservative justices on the Roberts Court, his first since his resignation from the Supreme Court, because he has unfathomably not. Plus, Emily, did you see those funny photos of the lifeguard in Hawaii rescuing Stephen Breyer on his first post-retirement vacation when he got caught in the wild surf? Plus, we will not <laughs> be talking about the funniest of story of the week, in which Breyer's ice cream named Stephen Breyer honorary chair of the company now that he stepped down from the Plus, Supreme Court. Emily... What a remarkable story out of France this week. Did you see that? No. That the Academy Francaise has named former Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer its Plus chief magistrate. Cocktail. <laughs> He's the chatter. first American ever. And I know we don't cover celebrity news much on the GapFest, but I wanted to just flag one story. I, for one, although you guys maybe were not surprised, that the mediator in the Kardashian West divorce is going to be none other than former Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. <laughs> Breyer Wilkins. Oh, it was such a funny story. You saw that former Justice Breyer totally botched his stint guest hosting Jeopardy this week. He just failed to understand that on Jeopardy, he gives the answers Plus, and the contestants ask What the a gaffe on Fox News this week. Did you guys catch this? <laughs> Fox News mocked former Justice Stephen Breyer for writing the majority opinion in last week's landmark death penalty. You guys case, saw the news of the Google ad campaign where they aired that TV spot in the Masters. Which but before we get started, I just have to served. tell you about a funny encounter that I had this week. I wanted to run it by you guys to get your thoughts on it, okay? And you, dear listeners, which is that I was, so <laughs> oh I was God. walking. Oh, God. <laughs> I was walking in DuPont Circle. It was a busy weekend day in DuPont Circle. And guys. a woman was driving a large SUV guys. and she had fronted into a... <laughs> Did I tell you about my new obsession? I'm taking an online class in life drawing. It is amazing. Life I have drawing? Life yeah. drawing. I haven't done any drawing since high school. I'm terrible, but I love doing it. And you'd think like life drawing, it's like sexy, but the models are just like regular people and they have regular people's bodies, which is too bad. But this week's nude male drawing class, the model was former Justice Breyer. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I, I did have a lot of fun that with is that. so great. <laughs> you know, as difficult as those were to, to live through in the moment, uh, the the I am irradiated with joy. That was so good. <laughs> Cumulative effect is really quite something. Uh, Thank you, Jocelyn, for putting that together. Beautifully done, Jocelyn. Oh. Uh, the back of my head hurts from smiling so much. <laughs> I think I need some kind of a therapeutic intervention. David, that really is just your like special genius. <laughs> we have Slate Plus segment this week and every week. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member today. And our Slate Plus segment is we're going to talk about one of the truly extraordinary TV shows and books of our time, Station Eleven. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus and become a member today. You'll get that bonus segment and all kinds of other goodies from us. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. 
Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. We're now joined by regular GapFest guest Anne Applebaum, who is an Atlantic staff writer and a scholar of Russia and Ukraine. And Russian troops, as we're taping on Thursday morning, Russian troops remain on the border of Ukraine. What is Vladimir Putin waiting for? Why has there not been an invasion, if there's going to be an invasion? Or is this the the kind of timing that we would expect? My guess is that he's trying to see what he can get. You know, from the beginning, one of the strange things about this whole event is that it's been unclear, even to people in Ukraine, whether Putin is really planning an invasion, whether he's bringing all these troops and soldiers and equipment to the border because he plans to conquer Kiev and kill a lot of people, or because he simply wants to create a situation where people are afraid of him, where he can push for things, where he can get the Ukrainians to do things he wants them to do, whether he can get the West, the Americans in particular, to, to agree to some changes in European security architecture. There have been a number of oddities. One of them is that the, the diplomatic negotiations have been somewhat stilted and that the Russians have presented publicly sort of unacceptable demands. And then when the United States says those are unacceptable, then they walk out of the room or they go and complain to the press. It's not the way you normally negotiate if you're a serious person. And so that's why many people thought this was just an excuse, a kind of, you know, they're looking to create a kind of casus belli. They're going to say, you know, the Americans wouldn't agree to this or NATO is threatening us or something. So one of the thoughts is that they're waiting to create some occasion or some reason, some jumped up reason um, to invade. And then, of course, as I say, the other alternative is that they're not going to invade. And it's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's a game to distract attention from his bad poll ratings and from the bad economy um, and to build himself up on the world stage. I think a lot of Americans have become accustomed to the idea that you don't just let some major power waltz into another country and kill a lot of people and take it over. But Ukraine's not in NATO. We don't have a formal treaty obligation. How should we be balancing our thinking about responsibilities without, you know, totally unrealistic conception of how the West should respond? Actually, although there are a lot of difficult policy dilemmas in the world, I don't think that this one right now is that difficult. Uh, it's, it's true that Ukraine is not in NATO and we are not under any treaty obligation uh, to send in the Marines to defend them if, if the Russians invade. But what we can do is raise the cost for the Russians. So we can arm Ukraine, which, by the way, we should have been doing over the last eight years. And by arm Ukraine, I don't mean give them nukes. I mean give them anti-tank weapons or anti-aircraft weapons, things that they can use to defend themselves in the case of attack. We can put together a package of genuinely damaging sanctions, which is theoretically possible. We've never fully done it before. Um, we, there was a little bit after 2014, the first time the Russians invaded Ukraine, but those didn't last and, and weren't, weren't deep enough. And we can raise the cost. I mean, for, because for Putin, this is all a question of cost. This is, a, this is what we would call a war of choice. He does not have to invade Ukraine. He's doing it, as I said, both for reasons of domestic politics, to distract people. He's doing it because he, I think, genuinely believes that the existence of a democratic Ukraine, one that is more or less prosperous and more or less stable and more or less integrated into the West, would be too big of an ideological challenge to him. This would be a, you know, a, a kind of argument against his autocratic and kleptocratic model of Russian government. Um, and, you know, he, he's, he wrote this long essay last summer about Ukrainian history, and he does have some idea that Ukraine is historically part of Russia, and it should never have been allowed to split apart, and never mind that they speak a separate language and they have different history and so on. So the point is that, you know, he, he may have calculated that this is a good moment to do this. The U.S. is divided. The alliance is divided. Everybody's distracted by COVID. Maybe this is a good time to right what he sees as a historical wrong. But if the price is very high, if it's going to cost him a lot in terms of casualties and in terms of money and in terms of damage to the Russian economy, then he might think, think twice. And I, I actually think that the administration has been not bad at telegraphing that message. 
It's too bad that the Trump administration played games with Ukrainian military funding. If you recall, that's what the first impeachment trial was about, rather than actually seeking to reinforce Ukraine. Um, but we are where we are now. And what we can do is, as I said, raise the price, make it a make it a harder choice for Putin. So, and uh, speaking about the administration, can you give us a little bit more of, a, of an assessment of how you think the Biden, how President Biden and the Biden team have handled this, their first tricky, maybe their first tricky moment, and then bolting onto that quickly, you wrote the piece we talked about on the GabFest, the bad guys are winning. Is there any way that Putin can get around crippling sanctions um, because it's easier to in a world where the bad guys are winning? So I, I, I actually think, as I say, the Biden administration is in a bad position. I mean, I, you know, partly because of Afghanistan, the assumption was that this was a weak team that was going to withdraw as soon as possible. They did a good job over the last couple of months of kind of screaming bloody murder and talking about some intelligence that they'd received about a possible invasion before anybody else was paying attention. They've done a good job of talking to allies. They've done a good job of talking to the Ukrainians. I was in Kiev in December, and I saw the president's chief of staff who says he talks to the White House once a week. That's all good news. In the negotiations, you know, they've they've made it clear that there is a path down for Putin. They're willing to talk. There, there is actually a lot of issues with European security that are worth talking about. All Most of our Cold War era arms treaties are out of date. Um, you know, the, there are things we could talk about with the Russians if they if they want to talk. So, uh, you know, I, I don't have I don't have so far any big criticism. I mean, Biden did say one stupid thing. I mean, he did that, you know, classic Washington error of saying something in public that everybody knows is true, but no one ever says, which is that there would be a complicated issue if the Russians do a kind of mini invasion or an incursion, you know, does that then trigger lots of sanctions or not? And we haven't decided yet. And that's true. That's a dilemma for the moment. Um, it's worth noting that if something terrible does happen, a lot of the conversation around this will change. You know, the some of the divisions in Europe around it will change. The whole situation will will look different. Um, your quest, second question, though, is really important, which is, can Putin get around sanctions, economic sanctions? Um, and obviously, he must think that he can. Um, the sanctions that were placed on leading um, Russian oligarchs, including some people close to him and who are thought to control his money in 2014, were hurt and they were noticed. But they didn't last. Um, I'm told that many of the sanctioned oligarchs can now travel to Europe on different passports. They've found other ways to hide their money or keep their money. I don't know whether it means they keep their children at universities in, in England and France or whether they've kept their houses in, on the, in the Mediterranean. But, but they seem to have found ways around it. And so tightening that finding a way of actually cutting Russia out of the international financial system. This is one of the things under discussion in a way that would not be, there wouldn't be an immediate substitute that the Chinese could create to help them out of it is, you know, would be a, an important change. I mean, I think the Russians don't quite believe this will happen. And that's partly because of another complication of this story, which is that thanks to decisions made in Germany over the last decade, Germany is almost totally dependent on Russia for gas supplies. And nobody is in Germany is excited about the prospect of gas being cut off in the middle of the winter to factories and to homes maybe as well. And so obviously that would be what how Putin would retaliate. There was a news story the other day saying that the Biden administration has been talking to Qatar and some of the Emiratis about backup gas supplies. How could we supply Germany in, in case that happens? Which makes me think that it's serious. And you live in a country, Poland, that was also under Russia's, for the Soviet Union's dominance for a generation, but is now a NATO member. And Poland does not have a border with Russia. I'm interested in your explaining like, is there a distinction between countries that border Russia and how we should think about them and countries that don't border Russia, but, uh, you know, historically were, were connected to them uh, or historically dominated by them, I guess, in that in the case of Poland and for that era um, and how we should think about it? I mean, is, is there some deference due to Russia because Ukraine is on its border in a way that that we should think about? So I really hate to do this, but actually Poland does border Russia. 
Oh, when cut with Kaliningrad. Yes, there's a little district right. of Russia yeah. called the Kaliningrad district, which the Russians right. took from Germany at the end of the Second World War and remains very Russian. It's full of Russian speaking Russians and it's part of the Soviet, I mean, it's sort of the Russian, you know, security system and you know, there are issues to do with that border all the time, both for the Poles and for the Lithuanians who are also on that border. Um, you know, Russia keeps, is thought to keep, you know, we're pretty certain that they keep tactical nuclear missiles in Kaliningrad that could hit Berlin. Um, so short range nuclear missiles. So it's actually a very important little chunk of Russia that's stuck right next to Poland. Um, but, but I mean, I guess the larger thrust of your question is, you know, should we you know, somehow defer to Russia. I mean, you know, just step back a minute and remember that Ukraine is a neutral country. It's not part of NATO. Um, it doesn't have any security guarantee from the West. Although when it became independent in the 1990s, the US, the UK and Russia signed something called the Budapest Memorandum, which talked about defending Ukraine's sovereignty and Ukraine, you know, Ukraine must remain an independent country, and the countries that signed it guarantee that. So Russia is actually in breach of treaties that it has signed, you know, and this is a much more stronger breach than, you know, they have this whole complicated thing about how there was a promise not to expand NATO, and the promise never actually happened, and it wasn't, you know, if, if, if James Baker said something off the record, it was never a treaty. Anyway, so, but this is a really solid guarantee that they gave in the, in the 1990s that they've broken. So, you know, I, you know, that's a little bit like saying, you know, the United States were to invade Canada, should we be cut some slack because Canada's on our border? You know, I think the answer to that would be no, you know, or if China were to invade, let's say, Malaysia, should they be cut some extra slack because Malaysia's over there in Asia somewhere? Ukraine is already in a zone of neutrality. It's not part of any formal Western alliance. You know, and in fact, many of its problems stem from the fact that it's in this kind of no man's land. And increasing that sense of insecurity around Ukraine, I don't think would keep us any safer. You know, also I should say, this, the, there are other implications to a Russian invasion of Ukraine for security and the economy of Europe and the world. I mean, what if we create a million Ukrainian refugees? What if we disrupt the gas pipelines? What if we disrupt the whole economy of Central Europe, you know, Poland, Germany? And so on. I mean, there would be huge implications for our stock market if you're worried about your your pocket. There would be huge implications for energy markets all over the world. So, I mean, there's a there are a lot of reasons why we don't want this to happen. Um, other, you know, this is this is not some kind of sentimental attachment to a country that's trying to become a democracy. And are there red lines? You talked about providing a way for Putin to climb down um, in that European security architecture. Is there something that you would point us to to kind of highlight? Um, if they find a way to help him climb down, it will have been giving him something. Um, is there is there a line for you where if they if they give him this, it will have been a huge mistake? So I, I think there's scope to renegotiate and discuss lots of arms treaties, um, placement of troops. We could talk about. Um, I mean, I think the red line is, you know, Russia cannot dictate the strategic policy of the Western alliance. They can't tell us what to do inside NATO, and they can't dictate who, who, who can and who can't be a member of NATO, because that then undermines the idea of NATO. That's a red line. I think the Biden administration understands that it's a red line. By the way, we would have a lot of demands of Russia, too. You know, they could withdraw troops from Georgia and Moldova. They could stop interfering in elections all over Europe. They could stop supporting far-right parties in every single European country, and, you know, the United States as well. You know, we, you know, it can't be the case that Russia can say, you know, who is our ally and who isn't. Ann Applebaum is staff writer at The Atlantic and GabFest contributor, regular GabFester. Ann, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Ann. Thanks a million, Ann. Mike Pesca, you GabFest listeners know Mike as the host of The Gist, the podcast that returned to the podcast airwaves this week, if there can be airwaves in podcasting. The Gist is a daily podcast about the news, but its primary draw is Mike himself, the pugnacious, gracious, and definitely loquacious host. Mike was always kind enough to have us on The Gist to celebrate our anniversaries, so we wanted to have him on the Gap Fest to celebrate a landmark for him. He's back. 
You can get the gist wherever you get podcasts. Mike, welcome back to the GapFest. Thanks, guys. And the gap between season one and season two was capacious. Um, that's what we're calling the new episodes of The Gist, season two, the first 1400 episodes, that was season one, and you could get season two, as you said, same place that you got season one, the same feed for you, the listeners. We're going to do something slightly different with Mike, because Mike is a uh, polymath, he's poly, and so instead of a single topic, we're going to do a quick round robin of a few topics, and Emily, let's start with the three officers who accompanied Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis cop who was convicted of the murder of George Floyd last year, they are now on trial. So the, the, the accusation is they broke the law by violating Floyd's civil rights by failing to stop Chauvin from murdering him. So should they be convicted? This is a hard one for me. One of the officers was holding back the crowd. He was Chauvin's partner. The other two were rookies. They were at the very, very beginning of being police officers. And there's just something really tough about the idea that people with so little experience on the job were supposed to take on their superior. And in fact, one of them did say to Chauvin a couple of times, like, maybe you need to move George Floyd because of the position he's in on the ground. And I I think it's desperately important for there to be accountability for the police. And I'm glad that in the wake of this incident, states have passed more laws, making it clear that officers have a duty to intervene. That's an additional protection along with this federal civil rights charge that is at issue in this trial. I just am having trouble with the idea of these two very new rookies going to prison. So anyway... In this case, is the federal, I thought the federal law was clear. It's just a question of whether they were willfully doing something they knew to be wrong. And then it gets into the question of whether having been trained and what the level of the training, some article I read said the training was basically on, in terms of stopping a colleague who's doing something you know to be illegal, was basically like one, or I think this is one of the defense arguments, one item on a PowerPoint. Um, and, mm. and one of the cops was actually trained by Chauvin, yeah. I believe. Um, yes. which makes it even more complicated, those facts you're talking about, because they have to prove that they willfully, I mean, I get that they had it in their head that this was, that they were allowing something wrong to go forward. And that's, that's what makes it hard to prove. I mean, Mike, I feel like that if the goal is to damage the culture of impunity that discourages officers from holding each other accountable, which I think we all want to do, we all want to right. undermine that culture. I don't know that you can do that by punishing two one-day rookies or, you know, early rookies, because they're, they're not part of a culture of impunity. They're part of whatever, anybody who starts a job is in the, the experience. You can just imagine yourself in that experience. You don't know what the hell, you don't know where down is up, left is right. You just are following the lead of whoever is your senior. So it's not, they're not part of a culture of impunity. They're part of a culture of, they're part of just being rookies, right? Right. And trials aren't U.S. or state versus culture of impunity. They're state versus Lane or King. And from what I understand, one was on his third shift. One was on his fourth shift ever. So really not even weeks into the job. I looked at what the experts were saying about this case, and it is a lot harder to prove than the Chauvin case, a 19-year veteran. Two of these guys were on parts of George Floyd's body for some of the nine minutes and 29 seconds. And there's a crowd there shouting... That one guy shouted 13 times, you're a bum. Everyone's shouting, you're going to kill him. You would think that someone would look over to see if the crowd was right. Are you going to kill him? So one's heart goes out. I do think there are issues of training in terms of proving the case. Maybe, I don't know if this is encoded in statute, but someone a year on the job might have the wherewithal to intervene because they know what the hell's going on. Someone three days on the job, you do want to say they should do something. There are three men on trial. And all three face the charges of failure to render aid and two face the charges of failure to intervene. And I don't know if you've looked that finally into it, Emily, but is there a difference uh, of those charges? I mean, I think the main thing here is that federal law requires cops to intervene against other police officers who are violating someone's constitutional rights. And then there's the standard of willfulness that John and David brought up, like that you have to get into the cop's mind and think, did they willfully fail to intervene? I think those are going to be the key facts here. And if I could make a quick prediction, it's don't trust the experts on predictions because I watched all of the Kim Potter trial. She was the police officer who 
killed that 18-year-old in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. She reached for her gun, not her taser. And the experts were saying, well, it's going to be really hard to get her on both manslaughter charges. And she was convicted on both manslaughter charges. As I said, I watched the whole case. Her testimony was not as great as I thought a lot of the people were saying it was. But one of her lawyers is Thomas Lane's lawyer, and he's already announced that his client would testify. So I don't know what to make of that, except that the jury in this case is a Minnesota jury who has already surprised experts with their willingness to punish even an officer who was said by experts to probably be in the clear on the most serious charges. Can I sashay in here uh, on on Lane's lawyer as a gentleman by the name of Earl Gray. Um, and the reason Earl Gray is interesting to me is not just that uh, it provides a, a nice warm morning brace against the day, but Earl Gray is t- stepping up to the argument that Floyd was showing superhuman strength and that he was all muscle and this is what created the conditions that were so insane that, that uh, Lane couldn't necessarily. Oh my God. And the reason that is additionally interesting beyond your initial reaction, which is that this is a long time trope of young black men who are, who die and then after the fact arguments are made to cover up the death, is that Minnesota is the ground zero for the use of ketamine and the false diagnosis of excited delirium that we talked about um, uh, in Colorado. Um, in this case, it sounds like that that's essentially what Gray might be walking up to is, is to talk about uh, excited delirium, which everybody will remember was used in the case of Elijah McLean incorrectly because it doesn't exist, according to experts. So that's that may creep into this case in addition to everything else we've been talking about. All right, that wasn't a lightning round because you can't be lightning and quick about subjects of life and death and and that are as serious as the Chauvin trial. But let's let's move on to our gistier kind of second topic, which is the Winter Olympics. The U.S. is conducting a diplomatic boycott, but Michael Pesca, should we conduct a watching boycott? of these Olympics. We absolutely should not. And I don't know if I could name one winter Olympian right now. There's probably some ex-gamer who... Sean White, right? Oh, well, if the flying tomato's there, then he's still there. Like, that's what I was going to say. There's some ex-gamer who's like, oh, Hannah Teeter's still involved. I don't even know if she is. But here's what I was thinking about the Olympics. We have so little cultural glue these days. There is no connective tissue among Americans. And the only thing approaching that is sports and specifically the NFL. I don't even mean in terms of anything as grandiose or beyond as grandiose as walking into the office and having a conversation on common ground on Monday after an amazing NFL weekend. And the NFL, though it dominates TV ratings, is not watched by most Americans. And the Olympics will be. And we used to live in a monoculture. Now we lived in a, in a fracture culture. There are many good things to that. But I just really think it will be nice to have. And the Winter Olympics are not like the Summer Olympics and they're more fragmented and not the, and the majority of people won't listen won't watch them but you know i was looking at the ratings of uh, ted lasso and they then and, and uh, apple put them out in terms of billions of minutes but if you do the math it's something like you know 12 million 15 million people might have watched ted lasso that's great but it's also three or four percent of the u.s population we i just think we need more cultural connective tissue and for americans the olympics are the number one thing that does that where we're not riven i guess we we watch politics but it makes us feel terrible so please give me the olympics wasn't there some great football game that did this last weekend? Can't that just four of them? The greatest week, the greatest football yeah. weekend. Could that just ever, be yeah. enough for a while? <laughs> football, but that doesn't that doesn't unite. Also, that's also it. Also divides us because the poor people in Buffalo now hate all the poor people in Kansas City. The lucky people in Kansas City. Well, but those people who don't live in either of those two states can revel in the excitement of football, which is which got pretty political for a while there too. But one quick thing on your point, Mike, about the Olympics and politics, those of us who hold your point of view, which I tend to, need to uh, hold steady against the hacky attempts to um, use a boycott of this I mean, there might be people who have good faith, legitimate reasons for arguing for a boycott, and I'm not putting them at this camp. But there's definitely a hacky kind of Joe Biden should have told them to, to boycott, which is being made by people who were totally on the other side of the uh, that position when Carter boycotted the Olympics. So it's there is the danger that it um, will lose its its uh, purity pretty quickly because, you know, hacks will hack. I, I thought that was a that was a brilliant argument, Mike. I thought that was totally persuasive. I absolutely 100% agree with you. I, I mean, I think the Winter Olympics 
qua sports qua sports are fairly mediocre. Skeleton is literally sledding. Luge is just stupidity. Uh, and and a lot of the sports aren't don't even merit the name. But I agree that the the chance to have some form of unity and and common feeling with with my fellow Americans uh, is really welcome. Didn't, didn't you just go to Minnesota to do a bunch of cold weather sporting stuff? Yeah. Okay. But come on, Emily, you're an Olympics hater. Come, I come know, okay. melt his winter Olympics. <laughs> frozen his frozen glory i mean i just feel like such a spoil sport because you made such a good like unity argument i mean i just it's such a waste of everyone's time and energy and money china is not a country that should have everyone like glorifying it right now and um i'm sure i will end up watching some of the ice skating as i always do well, it's not wasting your money and you don't have to watch it like how is it how could it be something which is fully voluntary for people to watch and consume how can it be a waste of their their time well that's a you you literally don't have to watch you it. know i think that in this moment of like covid fatigue and despair and just like political wilderness i don't even have the heart to dump on the olympics right now like if yeah if people find it illuminating and exciting <laughs> and they're taking some pleasure and joy in it like i it's you know what i'm not i don't have the energy to summon up my olympic hatred right well now. can you can you summon up hatred then for the Chinese who are committing genocide and crimes against humanity, which seems to be that the is same. very bad. Yeah. That's another unifier. Which is, uh, which is the which is the problem. Is I mean, it's nice to unify our country and and the world around sport, but um, in doing so, we add another layer and perhaps a pretty durable layer of um, cover up for the Chinese who are not only committing genocide and crimes against humanity regularly and as a matter of state. A policy, but then also the, with respect to the origins of the coronavirus, have been unhelpful to the world in trying to figure out what happened, um, which kind of matters too. All right, last topic: Pesca. Mm. The Washington Post listed fifteen different parties that Boris Johnson and staff created, attended in violation of very strict British limits imposed by his government on social mixing and gathering. It's incredible. The list of parties is amazing, including the two that were held the day of or the day before Prince Philip's funeral. That was those were the best ones. So Johnson is teetering. What should we make of this? I mean, is, he, is this something he should lose his job over? You'd think he'd be teetering after the parties, but he claims not <laughs> to have even known it was a party, or at least one of them, which raises the question, was this a really terrible party that people who go to it don't know it's a party? Or is he just, this is the answer, is he just so used to wild parties that a government-sponsored party, a bureaucrat-sponsored party, even if they bring in the wines in suitcases and party so much that they break his toddler's swing set, daddy... What happened to my swings? I don't even know if little Wilson... Did that happen? Will... They broke the swing set? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so it's all... It seems that this plus there is a new row to uh, channel my Britishisms where Boris Johnson authorized the evacuations of pets from Afghanistan before people. It was actually the staff of, uh, of an animal organization and their pets. But, you know, this is getting played up. The tabloid culture in Britain will do that. But I looked at the polls... And it seems that Boris Johnson is at, you know, 63% of the British public want him to go. And that usually is the determinant if people go. It's a little bit different in America because of the polarization. If you uh, look at Watergate or just listen to Slow Burn, you'll remember the difference between Watergate and Donald Trump's three impeachments or two impeachments and one could have been, um, was just the will of the political party, the conservatives in the UK probably are exhausted by Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson did a good job for them as far as Brexit, but now he's maybe a little like Churchill after the war. They have no purpose for him. And plus every leader, every Western leader is slipping in popularity, if not more underwater than above water, just because of the stress of coronavirus and the and inflation in the economy. So you look at it all, maybe Boris is shuffling off the stage. Do you guys think that in American political life, what would be the behavior that an American politician could con conduct that would cause this level of unpopularity at this point in polarization in this country? What would what would a Democratic politician or a Republican politician have to do to be this unpopular? Can I set the conditions? It would have to be something that so the two biggest unpopular periods for Bush and for Obama were during 
TARP and the Occupy Wall at the height of the Occupy Wall Street movement. And they both, for different reasons, lost a lot of support in their own base. So it would have to be something that ate away because the other side is always going to hate you. That's we're there. But so it'd have to be something that eats away. And even as bad as things are for Joe Biden in his base right now, and they're not good, they're not as bad as they were in those two instances. Trump didn't have it as bad because he had that iron lock on his base so that even when he was low, he was still uh, he still had support in his own party. But that's what I'm saying is that Trump did things that are manifestly worse than than holding a bunch of parties in pandemic, which is not great. And it's deeply hypocritical. And yet Trump never sank within his own party in the same way. And I'm just wondering if if there's even anything that an American politician these days could do to make themselves. I mean, could you, you know, if you like shot a bunch of dogs on the White House lawn, maybe? Well, like puppies, you strangled puppies. No, I think if you're a Republican politician, you need to have paid for an abortion. And if you're a Democratic politician, you need to have committed repeated you know, sexual harassment, although strike that because even that in, in, uh, in the case of Bill Clinton didn't hurt him. If Biden had done what Johnson had done, don't you think his approval ratings would be way down? Like you have to go against the grain of your own party and its conception of an important issue. Right. That's exactly right. The reason that Andrew Cuomo cratered was because he had no backing among the Democrats in, in his state and it's mostly Democratic state, what Johnson did cross-cut because there are a number of Brits who are saying the lockdowns were proper, we needed them, and you idiots violated them. But there are an equal number, close to an equal number, saying you knew all along the lockdowns were improper, and this shows your actions were in violation of that. So when you get both of those groups joining together in saying, I'm sick of this guy, that's when you have the cross-cutting disapproval. But it didn't hurt Gavin Newsom when he went to the French Laundry. Well, it did hurt him. It just that those recall opponent was him. ridiculous, and so he got away with it. Right, and and... In Britain, in a parliamentary system, especially this one, the conservatives who had an 80-seat majority know that they could retain power even without Boris Johnson, or they're probably calculating on that. So throw Johnson overboard, get another conservative in there. Mike Pesca, such a treat to be with you. Mike Pesca is back with the gist. Check it out, Mike. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Oh, my. Uh, when, when Emily, you are having a, a round of drinks at a Dallas bar, what are you going to be chattering to those Texans about? Okay, so I read a story in The Believer this week, and it's, it's not a new story. It's from August, but it's so good. It's by Wahini Vara, and it's about her efforts to write about the death of her sister, which she, which happened um, when Wahini was younger and she hadn't been able to figure out how to write about this important event in her life, um, even though she's a writer. What she decided to do was enlist the help of AI, specifically GPT-3, which is this AI model that if you feed it a little bit of text, it will keep writing for you. This piece for the believer is called Ghosts, and Wahini feeds it at first small amounts of information about her sister and then more and more, and you get to read the different versions of a story that um, that the AI helps her create. And you know what's really striking about this, not surprisingly, is that it ends up pulling out of her more and more beautiful writing about her sister. And then the AI program ends in a kind of, I thought, like really perfect way with this last story. So check it out. You can also listen to a related episode about this um, from This American Life. But I really loved the written version, Ghosts in the Believer by Wahini Vara. That sounds excellent. That sounds really Ghosts in the Believer. Yeah, I feel like you guys would love it. John Dickerson, what's your chatter? My chatter this week is on long-term versus short-term thinking. Is um, we've had a lot of opportunities to whinge about uh, the Build Back Better plan, the fact that it, that the coverage of it, as James Fallows writes about, is all about tactics and not about the the bill's long-term objectives. And so this week there was an anal- there was some analysis of a study that was looking at the effect of poverty reduction played on in early childhood uh, development by cash stipends. We know that the better your development as a baby. The more nourished your brain is, the better your outcomes in life will be. One study found that 
the cerebral cortex size accounted for perhaps 44% of the achievement gap uh, between low and high-income adolescents. So in this experiment, they gave $333 a month to mothers who had just had children, and then they hooked up those little crumb snatchers in their home, and this is important because they didn't take them into a clinical environment, with these um, uh, electroencephalograms to measure their brainwaves, and they found that the high-cash group, they gave money to one set of mothers and didn't give, or they only gave a smaller amount of money to another set of mothers, the high-cash group had more fast brain activity in the, ki- in the babies than the low-cash group. And so you don't want to put any too much emphasis on one study, but this study is huge because for both political and 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 science reasons, the science, of course, being that it appears that there's some relationship between cash and the brains of the babies, which they think could come from just the fact that the, the mothers in the home and perhaps the fathers, too, just have more time and are less stressed and are spending more time with the babies, and that helps with brain right. function. That's kind of a hunch. They don't know that for sure, but there's plenty of other studies yep. that show that relationship and correlation to be the case. The other political part I like about it that's interesting is that so far, the portions of the Build Back Better plan, the child tax credit, providing child care, have all been framed in terms of the of the behavior of the parents and mothers in particular. You know, are they going to waste this money? Are they going to spend the money on this, that, and the other thing? This study doesn't bother with that question. You're just given the $333, and it had this relationship on the babies. And the babies aren't, their behavior, you know, all they're doing is drooling. They're not using the money good or bad or otherwise, and it seems to have this relationship. So if what you care about is the development of the, these babies, because we've seen that development can pay off, then this is a really interesting uh, study in terms of, of giving us something that, that actually does seem to have some kind of a, of a result. So it's only one study, but it's the first of its kind, and, and it's worth watching. My chatter, just a little grouse, a little, I'm going to Andy Rooney it a little bit about vaccine cards. Has there ever been a worse piece of product design than the vaccine cards? They are the wrong size. They just made them the wrong size. You mean they don't fit in your wallet? They're too big to fit in your wallet. They're also not big enough to actually contain all the information you need. So I got my vaccine card. They filled it out. And then by the time I needed a booster, they said, oh, they wrote too big on your vaccine, your original vaccine card. So we have to give you a second vaccine card to carry your booster information. And they also, they didn't, you know, I was talking to a friend who laminated their vaccine card after they got it because they thought that's a way to protect it. But then you get a booster and you're, you can't use your laminated vaccine card. And they didn't tell us when we started to use these vaccine cards, oh, this is actually going to be a form of critical identification that you're actually going to need uh, in all these ways in the future. That became a sort well, of de facto thing. It wasn't, it, it wasn't built in. It, was, it certainly wasn't built into the product design. And so we have this pathway dependence on a terrible initial decision, a terrible initial design. And it's, it's awful. Do you really have to? I just took a picture of mine and I keep the some, picture in my phone. Some people don't accept those. Really? I, oh, d- it DC has, I mean, to DC, me. there is this app. So I now have my information on my app, but it was hard to get my kids' information on the app. But it's just, it's just stupid. It's like, why, why, why create something that bad? Or if you do create something that bad, why not like allow people to redress it somehow? To prove that I've gotten vaccinated, I just left the needles in my arm. I had to That's write good. in my own booster. <laughs> I didn't bring my card with me. You mean you self-administered? No, like I went and got the booster at CVS and they were like, do you have your card? And I was like, no. And they were like, well, we'll send you an email. And they did. And so then I just like wrote in the shot and the lot number. Because oh like, like an I don't system. know. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, what, what else was I supposed oh to do? God. You've, you've uh, justified my chatter. Listeners, you send us chatters. You send us chatters, uh, you email them to us at gabfest.slate.com, or you tweet them to us at, at @slategabfest, and then some really good ones. And there was a really, really special chatter this week. It's a very visual chatter, so I would strongly urge you to go check this one out. Our listener chatter comes from Tom McElroy. Hey, Gabfesters. This is Tom McElroy from Canberra, Australia. Long-time listener, first-time caller. My chatter is about a set of photos by the Russian photographer Dmitry Koch. He travelled through islands in the Chukchi Sea, part of the Arctic Ocean between Russia and Alaska. Koch found a group of polar bears living in an old Soviet meteorological station abandoned in the 1990s. His photos satisfy the human instinct to see a place where people can rarely go, and the polar bears appear remarkably comfortable and curious around their visitor. The internet can be such a toxic place, but occasionally it makes the world feel a little bit smaller. Thanks for your great show. 
I showed those pictures actually to my family and I, I mean, maybe it makes the world feel a little bit smaller. It made everyone I showed them to feel a lot sadder. <laughs> Honestly, the pictures are really kind of poignant. I mean, they're incredible photographs. I cannot recommend this enough. Please check it out. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, who always is a great producer. But this week, man, Joss, you really, you were doing it all, pulling everything in all directions. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is managing producer of The Gap Fest. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at, at @slategapfest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Hey, Slate Plus, how are you? We're going to talk about Station Eleven, which all of us have watched. Maybe all of us have read. I've read it. I think Emily's read it. I don't know if John has read it. I'm sure there will be spoilers. So if you do not want the book or the TV show of Station Eleven spoiled, don't listen. If you've watched it, uh, come enjoy it. And if you haven't watched it, definitely go watch it and definitely read the book because they're both just masterpieces. Emily, this was your idea, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, the book and the show are pretty different from each other in a way that I actually at first found kind of confusing because I'm such a literalist and I wasn't expecting it. Once I got used to it, um, then my doubts about that fell away. I think, I mean, I... The only reason I finished the show was that you told me to keep going because I found, like, the middle episodes confusing. That said... It is totally worth it. Um, and I think for me, it's it, part of the difficulty is that it's about a post-pandemic universe. So I found the first episode in which the pandemic um, basically destroys the world as we know it to be like a huge gut punch. Um, what, you know, the, tr- the, the relationship between art and human life on the show and in the book is just um, soaring. That is just a little tease, a little taste of the Slate Plus segment for this week. If you want to hear more, become a member. Go to slate.com slash Plus and become a member today. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.